Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the gram, stunt me and destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we have got on a very, very interesting guest. He is the author of the book, well, the book series, which is called Sanction, which is currently blowing up Twitter, making a whole lot of noise online. This is a massive book, and we have got on the show today, Roman McClay. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hey, Zuby. It's good to be here, man. Thanks a lot. It's really good to see you, man. For those who don't know, and nobody will know, but I'm going to divulge this. We actually recorded this podcast yesterday, but due to some technical issues, my computer decided to shut down before the file had saved. So we are actually repeating this podcast just for all you wonderful listeners. I know it's your first time hearing it, but I want you to know and to appreciate that. So uh, Roman, tell the people a little bit about you. Okay, sure. Yeah. So right now I currently live in the San Isabel forest uh, in Southern Colorado. And uh, I live on 35 acres and I'm surrounded by about a million and a half uh, acres of BLM land and national forest. So it's, it's pretty isolated. My, my comms issues are notorious. I, you know, I'm lucky to get two bars on a phone. I don't have internet, don't have TV. I'm pretty isolated. Um, and, and as you alluded to, the reason people even know me is because of the book sanction. It's, it's the thing that I've done recently, but as we'll get into, I had a, a very different life that led up to the writing of that book. But I, but I think that's a, that's a good start. Awesome. Well, I have heard a lot about you through a lot of my Twitter followers, lots of people I posted there saying, okay, who do I need to get on the Real Talk with Zuby podcast? And a whole ton of people mentioned your name. So I haven't yet had a chance to read your book, Sanction. I know it's a, I know it's a big old book and we will get into that. Um, but for people who haven't had a chance yet, why don't you explain to us a little bit about what the book is all about? Sure, sure. Okay, so it's a novel. So it's a fiction book. And, and I'm also a visual artist. And so, you know, I say this with no pretension, but just as a descriptor, I consider myself an artist. So I, I don't merely describe phenomena in a nonfiction way. I don't merely say A to B to C. I take the scenic route, and which is part of the reason why Sanction is so long, is because I take the scenic route. Um, and so that's important for people to understand. Now, having said that, the book does contain an enormous amount of, quote, information, a lot of data, a lot of science and math, physics, history, um, and, and personal things. I mean, there's just a lot of information in it, but, I, but I, I put it inside a story 
for a very specific reason. One, it's, it's how I am. It's natural to me to tell stories. I actually think stories are more effective, and, and the data actually shows this, that stories are just over 300% more effective at activating the brain than straight data acquisition, you know, straight nonfiction relaying of data. Mm-hmm. But it's actually more uh, effective to tell a story with your ideas within it rather than just tell someone the facts, quote the facts. And so because I'm a natural storyteller, because I've grown up on fiction, I've been reading fiction since I was a kid and I just love it. And because I found out later how effective it is at, at uh, reaching the brain, reaching the parts of the brain that actually can comprehend and retain information, it was just a natural thing for me to do. So I set out both as an artist and a little bit uh, as a magician, I guess, where I kind of wanted to, I wanted to get this information into people and I wanted to use the most effective means at my disposal. In the science world, they call it a vector, right? Mm. A vector is how you get information or um, in biology, a virus, in fact, is called a vector because mm-hmm. a virus is the most effective vector of getting uh, things inside a, a body. Yeah, and so Mos- mosquitoes I, I, are good too. Yes, and yeah. so the book is a mind virus. I gotcha. purposely created it to get information in people's minds. Uh, and so there's a little bit of a leisure domain, a little bit of a, a, a trick going on there, but uh, no malice, no malice. <laughs> I get you, man. So I want to get into the nitty gritty of the book in a moment. But before that, I want to find out a little bit more about the man who wrote it. So can you tell us a little bit more about who you are, what your life story is, where you're from, what you've been through? Because my understanding is that before you wrote this huge novel, there's a whole lot of stuff that happened before that led up to this moment. Yeah, you got that right. So, uh, yeah, we'll just start with uh, the fact that I was born into a uh, Air Force family. My, my old man was Air Force. Um, and so I spent the first half of my life traveling all over the world, including England. We lived on an Air Force base in England when I was a kid. Um, my mother is from New Zealand. She's a Kiwi. My father is from the south, the southern part of America, Arkansas. They're both Scottish on both sides. So um, that's kind of the beginning. Um, from there, we moved around a lot. One of the things I noticed when you have that kind of peripatetic lifestyle is you don't really make friends. You don't have the time to. You're in a place 18 months, maybe maybe three years if you're lucky. And so you don't really make friends. And so I made friends with books. It was just something that uh, happened to me, but I, but I latched on to quite eagerly. Mm. What, kind of stuff, became, what kind of stuff oh, did you uh, read as a kid? Yeah, yeah, so the first book I remember reading was Piers Anthony's On a Pale Horse. And it's a part of a series uh, that he did. And it's a heady book for an eight-year-old, you know? Um, <laughs> And, and I remember it introduced me to concepts that were just, they just blew my mind. And I, and I enjoyed the writing as well. And, and that could be classified in like fantasy or science fiction type, type book. Um, and then I moved on to like Ray Bradbury. I read uh, uh, The Illustrated Man, which is like a series 
of short stories in a compendium in a book. I remember reading that. It blew my mind, you know. And then I just moved on more to the canon as I got older. Just early on, picking on on Charles Dickens and Milton um, and things like that. But yeah, so that that th- those people those authors served as as my guides mm. in a way like i picked up not just uh, philosophy or ontology but kind of a mode of being like a a way to speak a way to think a way to be in the world you know and you don't realize it at the time right you take for granted any no matter who you are when you're 10 years old you think that's normal doesn't matter how weird a life it is you think it's normal it's only on upon reflection that you're like oh that's a different childhood than i've than I've heard from other people. Mm-hmm. So that was a big deal for me. Um, and then by the time I got out on my own, I just started working for a living. Um, I was very interested in manual labor. It just, I, I'm a physical person, I'm embodied. I feel the physical part of life is very important. And so I uh, worked jobs from uh, ranch hand to construction worker, drilling and blasting, oil field, you know, uh, horticulture, I mean, all kinds of very physical jobs. And so most of my adult life was spent working very physical jobs. I'm not a college graduate, for example. Sure. Um, I have, I have no probably, professional. Probably a good thing training. these days. Well, I do, not, <laughs> I do not regret it. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I have no professional training. So people should probably be aware of that. So um, I'm very much self-taught. Mm. And, and, and the, and the book, while it is heavily researched, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be falsely humble here. The book is heavily researched, but there's going to be errors. There's going to be mistakes. Some are on purpose because of the plot. Mm-hmm. Some are on accident because I'm human and fallible. Awesome. So tell us a little bit more about the process that got you from where you left that story to writing the book. What made you even want to write a novel? How did the whole idea come around? How did you create this world? Yeah, so this is called Real Talk. So I'm going to get real here for a second. Um, yeah. So I had a very successful business. I I was an entrepreneur from about the age of 33. and But I was an owner operator. So that meant I did most of the work. But I did have employees. I had business partners, people that helped me. But I did the majority of the work. Mm-hmm. And so I built this little fiefdom this successful business and in a small sense, from a working class perspective, it was successful. Um, and I was very proud of it and I was doing quite well. And what happened was is over, I would say 15 years from about the age of 25 to 40, 41, 42, I had had a series of collapses, economic and financial, or excuse me, and business collapses. And I just restarted. That was always my philosophy. It's like, well, if it fails, restart it, learn, learn, do it again. And I did that uh, 11 times. I restarted over and over again with, with minimal complaining. I, I complained a little bit, but I tried, to, <laughs> I tried to limit that and just get on with it. You know what I mean? Just let's go. Like failure is normal. You cannot sit around and wallow in this. Just get after it. And I, and I did. And I rebuilt the businesses. I rebuilt my life over and over and over again. But what I found was on the 12th time, and this happened when I was about 42, so we're looking at like 2016. Mm-hmm. I noticed on the 12th time, this last failure, there was so much malice involved. My business partners had ripped me off, locked me out, 
use the law enforcement and the legal system in order to affect this. I was told, quote, you have no standing in court. I don't know if you're familiar with that legal phrase. Not specifically, no. No, no it, it basically means uh, get bent. You're out of oh, here. Well, okay. You, you have no right to sue. Okay. Because fraud, fraud was committed against me and I could prove it, but the courts had no interest. So they said, you have no standing. And that's a death knell. As soon as the court says that, you, you're, you're done. There's no appeal. There, that's it. Okay. So that happened. I was ruined financially. I went from making maybe 25, 30 grand a month in cash mm-hmm. to zero, all mm-hmm. in an instant. And so I had to sell all my assets, including my home. I mean, I was really in a bad spot. Mm. Um, and all the people who I had trusted and liked turned out that they didn't really like me that much. And, and that's, you know, unless you're, you're a very tough and almost sociopathic person, if you have any kind of emotions at all, that's going to hit you. Of course. And, and I, I'm, I'm high in trade openness and, and I like people. I like my friends. I, and that hurt like physically, emotionally, like, dude, these, my friends just burned me. My girl just burned me. Like, my own family burned me. I mean, the, the details are Byzantine. They're, they're really, really shocking. And, and it shocked me. Mm. And so what I'm getting at is that for the first 11 failures, I was able to pick myself up by my bootstraps, no problem. But on this 12th failure, there was an extra element of malice that impacted me on an emotional level that I was not prepared for. Mm. And so I went to a very dark place. And I had all kinds of ideas of what I was going to do in order to uh, make this right. But what I told myself was, I said, how about this? Why don't you do something creative with your pain? Why don't you try to do something positive? Um, I, I basically gave myself a pep talk. And, and I gave myself an out, too. I said, look, if this book thing doesn't work, you can go back to plan A. Yeah. But, but plan B gave me something pro-social, constructive, positive, ethical that I could do with the pain and the malice and the, and the catastrophe of my life. And so that was, it was kind of, you know, uh, the North Star for me. It's something I could follow. And I, I think you know this, man needs a goal. Goals help us immensely. It's, it's actually biological, right? Like the Absolutely. thalamic system. Yeah, the thalamic system is actually activated by you never quite attaining your goal, but always within reach. Mm-hmm. You're making progress, but you're never quite getting it. You know, you're, and you're the uh, dog chasing the car and you never catch it. <laughs> but the fun is in the chasing. Okay. Gotcha. So, yeah, so man needs a goal. And, and that gave me a goal. It gave me a big goal because not only did I have to write the book, but I was homeless. And I had my land, I had my 35 acres, but it was feral. It was pure dirt. There was nothing above ground nor underground. Mm-hmm. So I had to literally come and live in a tent for five months, dig holes in the ground to put my septic system, my water system, lay the concrete foundation, bring the containers in. Shipping containers are just raw metal. Mm-hmm. Bring them in, drop them, cut them open with my plasma cutter, weld in all the doors and jams, pour the concrete, put the fixtures in. I mean, I had to build a home from scratch. Wow. While living while living in a tent while while black bear were rooting around my tent looking <laughs> for a meal. You know? Wow. Um yeah. And I held on to my twelve gauge uh yeah. quite tightly. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, don't, I don't blame you. Yeah, so 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 then once I got the house built and I moved in 
we had a snowstorm here. Literally the night I was able to move in the container, we had a snowstorm break. It was so heavy that it, it made a tree fall over and land on my tent and crush it. Oh gosh. Like, yeah, literally. So if I had been in that tent one extra night, would have been it for me. Man, so, that's crazy. And this, that crazy? this this house is where you're in right now as you're recording that's this. It. That's awesome. right. It's just, so yeah. for, for people who are just listening to the audio version, I don't know how to dis- describe this scene here, but there's a very unique aesthetic here. I can see, um, are those deer antlers in the background and skulls? That's right. Yeah. So there's bear on either side of me. Okay. There's some bobcat up there, but yeah. And the mule deer, we get a lot of mule deer here, which are different than white tail deer. White tail deer is common in a lot of America, but, but we get a lot of mule deer here. Okay. But yeah. And then there's coyotes too. Wow. Me and the coyotes. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the UK now. In the UK, there's no animals here that can kill you. Uh, yeah. That's actually something that no one ever talks about, but I, I've actually kind of realized with the UK and quite a lot of Europe, not all of Europe, but in the UK, there, there are no animals really that can kill you. In, in North America, tons of stuff can kill you. Africa, tons of stuff can kill you. Asia, Australia. UK is just this sort of like place floating out there, UK and Western Europe, where actually like the scariest animal here is, I don't know, like a, a fox, maybe a badger. And you don't and even... The, and, and the Scottish. You have to do the, the Scottish. <laughs> they're pretty nice in my... They're, they're pretty nice as far as... Yeah, they as, uh, shipped all the worst ones over to America. That's how we got here. The ones that are there are civilized. Yeah, that's yeah. funny. No, yeah. that's interesting though. But yeah, so we have predators here. And in fact, mountain lion are the worst. Okay. And, and I should say they're the best. They're the best apex predator in the forest. And mm. they scare me the most. And I've seen them twice. One was hunting me while I was hunting bear. We'll get into that story because that story okay. is actually important for the novel. And I was able to, to, to kill it. Um, and then I saw another one like a week ago just wandering on my property and then gone. I mean, mm. they're just, they're very dangerous. And uh, the heart rate goes up when I see them for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they, they, attack and hunt humans yes they they are very predatory and aggressive bears are different bears Mm -hmm. are dangerous but they just as soon run from a fight as have one yeah yeah you know yeah they're not aggressive black bear now grizzly bear also called brown bear are much more aggressive but we don't have them here gotcha Uh, you you pretty much have to go to alaska to get the grizzly now okay gotcha so yeah man yeah so you you were telling us about um Sorry, I, I went off track a little, but I, I, was, I wanted to let people know, especially if they're watching the video, that where you are right now is a home that you literally built with your own two hands. Do you have any help whatsoever or just you? Look at these hands. I can see them. <laughs> did, you have, did you have any help or was it just Oh, yeah. No, no, I had help. Definitely. Okay. Definitely. okay. Yeah, no, because I, I, there's a lot of heavy stuff, you know, and you got to the front end loader. Yeah. yeah, I was wondering. Like I was like, concrete. geez. Yeah, this concrete counter behind me, each slab weighs about 350, 400 pounds. Okay, gotcha. So that means I had to have another large man on the other end of that help me. So no, I definitely had help. Okay, cool. I was going to say, man, I was like, what what are your superpowers? No, no, no. I had had help. So we started on New Year's Day, 2018. House is done. I'm in. I start to work on the novel. Uh, however, I'm in a position where I have to hunt for my food. I'm pretty broke and I need to eat. Mm -hmm. So I go out for a hunt. I basically plan on a two or three day hunt. Um, 
it's a time of the year where I'm, I'm going to hunt bear. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm sleeping more during the day and hunting at night because they're nocturnal. And I had a dream on the second night that felt very, very real. It did not feel like a dream. It felt very real. And just to give you a little bit of context, I was an atheist for, well, since I was probably 18, 19 years old. Mm-hmm. And so almost 25 years of a non-believer. And, and I'm an obnoxious one at that. You know, very, one of those types of atheists. We all know them. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. And so I had been reading some physics books and uh, from a guy named Donald Hoffman and Dr. Bruce Lonza. And these were physicists who were basically describing the physical universe as inverted from the standard model. In other words, that it wasn't physics and math first, then biology comes later, then consciousness comes third. Their idea was that consciousness came first. And obviously, since man was not around at the time, that, that means God. Mm-hmm. And, and so that kind of softened me up because I was impervious to religious arguments because I was impervious to mythology in my mind, right? Mm-hmm. I was imp- impervious to things that weren't logical. Um, and so their, their descriptions of the universe in this manner softened me up. All right. So that's some background. That's some context. Then I have this dream when I'm out in the, in the forest hunting in which the book appeared to me fully formed and I woke up a believer in God and it was, it was not a rational experience. It was immediate. It was visceral. I was certain of it. I had no doubt. Um, And so I came home and I came home and wrote the, I spent the next 10 months writing the novel and I used the word transcription Mm-hmm. Because it just felt like I was merely transcribing what had been given to me. And I hope the listeners will not feel that that's an arrogant statement. I'm not, I'm not pretending to be uh, the amanuensis of God. Like, I, I'm just merely saying that I woke up and I had this novel in my head. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. But, so yeah. Do, you, do you remember that dream? I mean, what actually happened in the dream? I'm curious. Yes, I do. Yeah. I remember it as if it's a memory. I mean, it, it's as if it happened to me. It's that clear. Okay. And I, and it's actually in the novel. So I, I, I'll give you the, I'll give you the bullet points. Okay. But one of the things was, is I was standing on a black beach in Scotland and there were monoliths, you know, these giant hewn rocks all around me, There's five of them. And I just heard the voice of God and I just knew it was God. And he was explaining this novel to me and he didn't have to use that many words that's the strange thing because one of the funny things about the book is the amount of words <laughs> it's one it's 1.2 million words but it's crazy in that dream in that dream god did not use 1.2 million words he did not need that yeah <laughs> but uh, yeah that was the that's the tableau is okay. me on this beach in scotland overcast you know the highlands just very dark and and this booming voice explaining what i needed to write down and i know how that sounds if someone told me that i'd roll my eyes but (laughs) no no i i believe you i'm more i'm more curious to know how your sort of how your old self kind of reconciles that with your new self or how how, how it would have 
Yeah, yeah, me and him had to get a divorce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that that's interesting. Like, no way, dude. No yeah. way. No, it's, um, it's fascinating. I mean, I'm someone who's been um I've been a Christian my whole life. I was I was, you know, raised in the faith. I've always been a believer. And I myself have never had an a vision or a dream or kind of a experience or revelation of that of that sort. So I'm just extremely curious as to that happening to someone who was such a staunch atheist for several decades and how that kind of, I don't know what went, what went through your brain following it. Yeah. And it's not like I'm ignorant to the data that shows that you can activate a revelatory experience with parietal lobe uh, stimulation. I know you can artificially stimulate the brain to produce an experience of God. It's not that I'm ignorant to that. It's that I don't care. Because the experience was mine, it was real, it comports with, like I said, what I think the physics is now starting to come around to, mm-hmm. right? That the, that the science is actually catching up with religion. And I believe that. And, and, and I'm not the one saying it. These are serious guys. Donald Hoffman is a serious physicist. The guy's brilliant. And so, like, I'm not the only one saying this. Second, it was, it was a real experience for me, emotionally, psychically ontologically it meant something to me and it saved my life Mm. now i think most people will understand this it's like if you're in a position of wealth and health and everything around you is going pretty good you may be able to get away with your atheism i certainly did my Mm. life was good for a long time and i could get away with it Mm. but i found that i was really on the edge i was on the edge of and i i don't know how many of your listeners will relate to this but there's certainly some percentage of the population who feel like they could go at any moment, whether through suicide or alcoholism or just giving up on life, whatever. Sure. And I was really on that edge. And this dream and my newfound religious experience pulled me back from the edge. It had that effect on me. Mm. And that's real. You know, that, that saved my life. And I'm not interested in and dismissing that um, out of hand because it's, quote, illogical or irrational. Yeah. yeah. No, that's very powerful, man. It's a very powerful testimony. I know that's not, the, that's not the aim. Your aim is not to go out there and evangelize or convert people, but that story in itself is, yeah, it's, it's very, very powerful. So you said that after having that, you literally hold yourself up for 10 months and you wrote millions and millions of words over the course of under a year. So tell us more about that. Yeah, so I didn't even know how many words I had written. I didn't understand. I just had the book. I had the novel. I had all of it. I sent it to someone to upload uh, through the publisher, through Amazon. Mm -hmm. And they rejected it. They said, no, you don't understand. This is 2,400 pages. We have a limit here. (laughs) You know? And I was like, oh, okay. I said, well, let's break it into three then. That's the natural cleave. Mm-hmm. is because their limit was like 820 pages or something. So um, the natural way to do it was in threes. And so what I did is I broke up the first third of the novel, what I thought was a complete novel. From what I'd written, I could put it together, it makes sort of sense, and put it out, which I did, which a year ago today, one of my uh, Twitter guys told me today was Sanction's birthday. Nice. Um, yeah, I didn't know. He was like, happy birthday, Sanction. Um <laughs> So yeah, so a year ago today, the first one come, came out and it's 440,000 words. Mm-hmm. It's 
uh, about 800 pages, give or take. But originally I'd, I had written 3 million words. Wow. And yeah, but most of them were just nonsense garbage. And you got <laughs> you have to edit that stuff out. And so what I ended up with was 1.2 million. And so I, I broke each of the books into about 400 and something thousand words a piece. And so that's where they're at. They're, they're done. They just need, they're being published in series. So the second mm. one just came out about two months ago and the third one will be out in a couple of months. Gotcha. And for context about how many, how many words are in the Bible? Do you know? No, I know no? it's close to that though. It's around the same. I, it's around. Yeah. And okay. the, my touchstone was Proust, Marcel Proust. He wrote a book and it was considered the longest novel ever written. And it was 1.2 million words. Wow. And so when I hit that, I, that was my touchstone was Proust. I was like, uh Oh, <laughs> I just messed with the, with the man, you know? So, you, so you, you might actually hold a record and you might not know it. I might. It depends on how generous they're going to be about the fact that this is one book or not. If they say, okay. no, it's three books, then I'm out. I'm gotcha. out. But if they gotcha. say, if they say <laughs> it's one novel, man, then I'm, I'm up there with Proust, which is wow. cool. That's, that's actually a good point. I do wonder what is considered one book, right? Because you could, there's a lot of book series that you could technically sort of put together and say that they're one book. So I, I do wonder how they delineate that. Yeah. Yeah. In my defense, I did write it as one book. But yeah, yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't publish it as one. Yeah, that makes sense. So what, yeah. was the actual, what was the actual process, man? I mean, I feel like we're kind of just glossing over a 10-month process here. Ah. How did you actually do this? I mean, writing 3 million words, which when edited down comes down to 1.2 million. That is a huge novel. That's a, that's a crazy undertaking. And to do all that, in less than one year, I've never in my life heard of something like that. So how did you do that? Yeah, so I got up every day at oh dark 30, got writing immediately and wrote and, until I passed out, basically. Sleep overcame me. I did not go to bed, right? I was just exhausted and passed out. So there were days I easily wrote 16, 18 hours a day, easily. Mm -hmm. And that happened every day, day in, day out, day in, day out um, for 10 months. So it was an obsession. I mean, there's a certain amount of unhealthiness in that. Um, and I don't want to gloss over that either, right? Like there's a certain madness in anything grand, mm -hmm. right? To the extent that this book has grandeur, there's madness baked right into it because I, I was obsessed. Hmm. I was obsessed with, because I, you know what I I just thought of this. I was, I was concerned that I was going to lose the thread, the vision. Okay. I was like, if I don't get this out, God's going to take it. I'm going to take yeah. it back. Yeah. I guess you like, yeah. Right. Like you're lazy and I'm done with you. I'm taking it back. So I just felt obsessed with like making sure I got it on to the page. So I think and that was a big part of it. Got you. And I'm curious, I've, ne I've never written a novel before. I write songs. I've written a nonfiction short fitness book. But how do you, how do you, I'm trying to understand like how it comes together. Do you, do you write it in sequence? Do you write a, a plan of, okay, this is, this is roughly what's going to happen. This is how it's going to start. This is the middle. This is the end. This is how the characters are going to develop. I don't, how do you, how do you do it? How do you put something like that together? I don't understand. 
Yeah. So, okay. So there's the normal way, the right way. Okay? Mm-hmm. And, and then there's the way I did it. So <laughs> yeah, I broke every rule for this kind of stuff. And if you talk to real authors, legitimate authors, they'll roll their eyes at what I did. They're just like, everything you did is wrong. And yet it worked. <laughs> yeah. You know, how is that possible? Because I literally did break every rule. I mean, you're not supposed to write more than 70,000 words really, you know, for a book. It's just kind mm-hmm. of the limit people can handle. You're not supposed to use really high end language. Like they say to write to basically a 10th grade level. Okay. And, and really even less than that, but for novels, it's a little higher because people who read novels are a little bit more educated than the average person, mm-hmm. but you're not supposed to write at the level I wrote. Um, just insane vocabulary. You're not supposed to do that. Hyper-constructed sentences, you know, sentences that are like a, like a, a sentence with a hundred words in it and four semicolons. Right. Like just, you're not supposed to do that. No, it's no. insane. And plus it's very internal. Like most of the book, I wouldn't say most, but a large part of the book is the internal thoughts of the characters. Again, that's, you're breaking a rule because basically you want to promote action as opposed to internal uh, thinking. So I did all the wrong things. Uh, I think I just did an anti-advertisement for my book. I think that's what I just did. <laughs> well, it's working, man. I it's mean, working. People, yeah. people seem to love it. I've had a bunch of people, like I said, that's how this podcast happened. I had a bunch of people tell me, yo, uh, Zuby, this guy is mind blowing. You need to, you need to speak to him. You need to, he needs to tell you about his book sanction. And so, yeah, with that many ringing endorsements, you can say that you did everything wrong on paper, but obviously the result is saying something different. So tell us more about how people are responding to it. Oh, that, I think that's my favorite part is when I released the book, I had almost zero expectations of people reading it because I knew how weird it was. Mm. And, and I understood that. And I said, but I'm going to do it anyway. We'll see what happens. And when you go into something with zero expectations, it's all gravy, man. It's so great. And so like I got my first reader and, and he sends me a DM on Twitter. It was like, I've never read anything like this. This mm. is the greatest book I've ever read. What is this? And he was shocked, you know, and now I'm shocked. And now me and him are like the only two people on Twitter that know about this book. Right. And it's like, wait, we got this connection now. And it just spiraled from that. And I had some, I had some big help in the beginning and I had guys with very high Twitter following guys like Hunter Drew, men like uh, Alexander Cortez, um, who, who picked up on me almost immediately. I hadn't, I had 49 followers. I had no, I was nobody. And they just reached down and picked me up and said, this book is great. I want my readers to see this and read it. Alexander said, you must read this. Like he wrote that in bold. Like he told everyone, you know, 60,000 followers, you must this. Hunter said the same thing. Hunter just said, he tweeted it out. If you don't buy this book, unfollow me. I don't want you following me. I mean, you can't buy that. Yeah. So then what happened is, is their followers bought the book, read the book and were contacting me all the time in DMs. And I was so happy that I would just spend my day now talking with followers. And it, it kind of turned into a thing where um, I, my interactions with my followers became part of the story. So what I would do is they would just, they'd send me a photo, right, of the book in some tableau, right? They'd mm-hmm. put antlers from some animal they had killed. Uh, they put it inside a freezer. They put, they put it on top of a, a Rolls Royce. One guy had a Rolls Royce. He put it on the hood of his car, you know, just funny <laughs> things like that. And, and they would send me pictures of like to prove that they had bought the book. 
and, and, and then what I would do is write them a little story, like a 280 character story, including them in the novel. They became a character. It was made up, like it wasn't really in a novel, but I would basically just write a micro fiction for them as okay. like a thank you. Yeah. Cool. And yeah. And people dug that. They were just like, that's cool. And, and so we ended up with this kind of creative relationship where they would do cool things with the book. They would video it. I've got a guy who literally put it on top of a 50 caliber minigun <laughs> in the middle of the desert, you know, flying over Afghanistan or somewhere. I mean, just crazy stuff like, like what? And, and uh, stuff like that. And so it, it turned into this kind of one upmanship of them finding weirder and weirder places to put my book and me crafting weirder and weirder little micro fiction about them. And it was just a very fun back and forth and it created this, this community. And, and it was, it was just very gratifying for me because like I alluded to earlier, I grew up basically with no friends. Mm. I've had, I've had bad relationships with people most of my life. And I take, I take full responsibility for that. I'm not blaming people, but the point is, is I've had a, I'm, I'm not, I've not had a lot of good friends in my life. Okay. And, and so now I do. And, and so it's fun for me. And so I'm kind of, you know, I'm reveling in it and, and it's been a, a lot of fun and the book sales have just been incredible for me again, for my expectations. I mean, compared to a best-selling author that sells a million books, I'm nothing, but compared to what I thought I was going to do, it's been exponentially better. That's fantastic, man. And where yeah. does it, uh, where does it all go from here, man? What have you got next? So I was contacted, uh, by some actual film directors, people that have actually made films, beautiful art films, films I respect very much. And, and they want to turn sanction into a, a, a film or a series. Wow. And, and so I'm all in on that. That's going to come next. Hopefully we can get the funding for it. You know, a book is a solitary enterprise. Mm. One one man in his shipping container can write it, but a film is collaborative. You need a lot of people. Sure. So uh, that's next. I'm excited by it. I think it's going to work, but with the caveat that I know that, that the more complex a machine, the more likely it is to break down. And a film is a much more complex machine than a novel. Mm, I understand that. And um, so what's crazy about this whole podcast so far is we haven't even really talked about what the book itself is about. So <laughs> tell us a little bit more about Sanction and the world that you've created. Okay, yeah. So let's start with the basic plot line and we'll see where it goes from there. So the one of the main characters is a gentleman by the name of Boyd Sue and he is a scientist. He, his claim to fame is he created a company, Praxis Corporation, that does gene editing and uses CRISPR uh, as a way to edit genes. And for reasons that are undisclosed, he has an obsession with fixing criminality. He believes that criminality is a genetic phenomenon. He believes there are certain genes and in, in individuals that make them more antisocial, more likely to commit crime. And so he wants to fix these genes in, in criminals instead of just sending them to jail for the rest of their life. He wants to fix them like mm -hmm. you would fix someone with a broken leg. Okay. Um, yeah. And so, but he knows he can't do that as a private citizen, even though he's a rich and powerful man, he, he's a civilian, a citizen, and he can't, he can, he doesn't have access to the criminal population the way that a quote politician will. Right. So if he, his vision is to 
become governor of Colorado, the state that he and his company resides inside. And so he has to win the governorship in order to get a hold of this prison population and fix them. That, that's his raison d'etre. That's his mindset. Mm-hmm. It's like, I have to win the governorship. So his other project is building what I call embodied AI. So that's not artificial intelligence in a computer, but in a body, a human-like body. And so he develops that. Um, and that AI is tasked with getting him elected because he considers himself an independent. He's neither left-wing or right-wing. He's neither Democrat or Republican. And he knows without the support of the parties, it's hard to get elected. So instead, he relies on his AI to get him elected. Um, it's no spoiler to say that the AI gets him elected and, and he wins the governorship of Colorado in 2018. Okay. And from there, yeah, and from there, he begins his project of working on prisoners, recidivist uh, inmates. That, that's the beginning of the novel, essentially. And where it gets interesting, I think, is that their first inmate, their first patient is so unique that the AI themselves decide that the governor's plan, that the task that they have been given is not grand enough, not capacious enough, that it is, it's beneath them. And so the AI decide they're going to, do their own thing. And that's where everything gets a little weird. Oh yeah. AI and robots. I'm, I'm scared of all that stuff in real life, man. People need you to and me both. Yeah. <laughs> so, you and me both. Yeah, man. So you, you said you researched this book a lot. I mean, what kind of research did you have to do to get a better grasp on some of these topics, which I assume include, uh, I don't know, psychology, biology, AI, you've touched on a whole bunch of things, politics, what kind of reading or research did you have to do? Yeah. Um, so I read a lot of biology books and like primatology books. So like Franz DeWall does a lot of work on chimpanzees. Chimpanzees are our closest relative. Um, and so that it was important for me to understand chimpanzee behavior and genetics. I did a lot of genetic research on specific alleles the MAO-A short chain allele is a big gene in the book and for, for good reason. It's a very interesting gene. Um, I also read a lot on artificial intelligence. One of the first ones was Ray Kurzweil's The Singularity is Near. He's kind of a popularizer of AI and, and technology. And so I read his books. And then I read a lot of history as well. Uh, history of the Spartans and Attic Greeks, the Skaldic sagas of the Vikings and Norse, the Mongolian steppe, the Japanese, uh, the Maori of New Zealand. Then a big focus on America too. I am an American and so I focused heavily on the origins of the country and the way the country is actually split genetically in a very interesting way that a lot of people don't know about. Okay. But the nor- yeah, so the northern part of America, the north, was settled by the English. But the southern part of America was settled by the Scottish. Okay. Okay, and I alluded to this earlier when you and I were joking about the Scots. And what had happened was is that 
you know, the Scots and the English had always kind of been at each other's throats for all of time. I mean, it just goes back so far. And what had happened in 1745 is with the latest Scottish rebellion, they were called Jacobites. And when they lost against the English, the English put a lot of them to, to death, but they also gave some of them the option of exile. And the places they were exiled to was New Zealand and the southern colonies at the time were British colonies. Mm-hmm. And, and so the southern part of the United States really was settled by the Scottish and not just any Scottish, but the worst of the worst. So my people, my ancestors were the worst, the most intransigent Scots imaginable that they literally had to be exiled from the Isle, from the British Isles, mm. because they just could not get along. And so there, and, and then what I, I alluded to this earlier, but there is a genetic difference between people like the Scots and the English. And, and it, it really seems to come from this idea that, that tribes that are, live in austere environments, so mountainous environments where you can't have agriculture because the soil's too poor, the weather's too awful, tend to develop genetically a little bit differently than those that live in more lush or fecund areas that can raise crops. Mm. And, and, and I read a, a very interesting book called Culture of Honor, this guy named Nesbitt, and he's a social psychologist. And he basically showed that if you put a Southern man, so a man from the Southern part of the United States, under a certain condition, put him in an experiment where he's insulted, right? Where someone does some, some affront to his mm-hmm. honor. Mm-hmm. He physically reacts at the level, of, at a metabolic level, you know, with uh, testosterone differences, with cortisol differences, right? This is the system inside you that makes you feel things. Mm-hmm. And, and then you have to respond to that. Okay. And so there, the, Scot- the Southern man's allostatic system was in a much higher state of royal, a much more agitated state physically mm. than the, a Northern man's. Now from the outside, they look the same, right? You, from the outside, you can tell the difference between someone from, from New York City and someone from Alabama, right? You, other than maybe their, their dress code, you can't tell the difference. They just look like two white guys. But, but genetically, because one is English and one is Scottish, there actually is a big difference. And that difference is, is that Southern men take offense much easier. They get mm. their, their hackles up way quicker. And I mean metabolically their testosterone goes through the roof, their cortisol goes through the roof. It's, a, it's an actual physical phenomenon. And that That's was fascinating to me. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. I've, heard it, I've heard something like that touched on a little bit um, by Thomas Sowell in his book. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's called uh, Black Rednecks and White Liberals. There's Bingo. a part at the beginning where, yeah, he does mention some of the stuff you talked about, but not in, not in quite that detail. I wasn't aware of the actual sort of biological level stuff with him. It was more of a sort of cultural analysis. Yeah. And, and I've read him and he's great and you're right. And, and the cultural part matters because the culture comes from, in my opinion, from the genetic predisposition, right? So your Mm -hmm. genes build a specific culture in which it makes sense. So like, you know, the, the Scottish Highlander had a culture, but that culture sprang up from the fact that certain genes were selected for in austere environments. So like in the 13th century, I remember reading a, uh, a book 
that had what was called a Viking travel log, right? So it was like, it was like an Airbnb uh, uh, report from the Vikings. And they said of Scotland, the people are hostile, their language is incomprehensible, and the weather is awful. And these are Vikings, <laughs> right? Like when the Vikings are trashing you <laughs> as being barbaric, you know you have problems, right? So, so, so those kind of things stuck in my mind. And so when I looked at the, I, but I wanted to know why. I'm just one of those guys that I'm just always digging deeper. And, sure. and when I got to the genetic alleles, and this is all very new stuff, you know, this genetic phenomenon that's going on now where you can get your own DNA report. Mm. It's just fascinating. And I got mine. Um, and I saw these specific alleles that I had been researching. I saw I had the MAO-A short chain allele. Like I saw I had these very specific alleles for specific Scottish tribes that, that had been, uh, well, let's just call it what it is, inbreeding for thousands of years. You know, yeah, my, yeah. my tribe is very, my, my genetic uh, tree is a stump. You know, there's not much <laughs> branching off, you know. And, um, and so these things fascinated me because I wanted to know, well, why is Scottish culture different than English culture? You know, why were the Spartans different than the Attic Greeks? And, and why were Northerners different than Southerners? And so I traced it back to genetics. And the only caveat I'll, I'll, I'll offer, and this goes for everything I say, is I don't know anything. I'm merely painting a picture. I'm, I'm putting things together, seeing if it fits. You know, I, I'm not claiming this is 100% accurate. I'm merely saying, look, I've done some research. I have some data. It's interesting. It comports with my own life. It comports with my own family, my own experiences in America and around the world. And so I, I built a novel around these things because I thought they were innately interesting and that men especially men of of my um countenance or my personality you mm -hmm. know kind of aggressive men who are very loyal to their people but also kind of antagonistic to authority like my personality archetype i thought if i wrote a book like this it would find those kinds of people and they would for once feel how i felt which was almost redeemed by it because one thing modern society does is it tells men like myself and my compatriots, it tells us that we need to uh, settle down, mm -hmm. not be so macho, right? It's called toxic masculinity. Oh, yeah. We don't I know, know all about that. You, you know all about it, man. And, and, and we're told constantly that we're the problem. We're too aggressive. We're too macho. Um, and I wanted to understand why I was, I was the way I was. Mm. And it turned out that my archetype my personality type and my genetics actually is pro-social it is a decent way to live but only within a certain milieu only within the highlands of scotland or on the mongolian steppe or mm. you know like the kellingen uh in kenya you know them all the runners you know that and, all the runners yeah. yeah yes i do yeah yeah, yeah. yeah those guys are amazing right but yeah. there's a reason they're amazing they go, their rituals uh their maturation rituals are painful man and so yeah i mean coming back to what you were saying earlier on you were talking about the book being a vector for a certain message and what is that specific message that you're trying to put out there what do you want people to get when they read the book so i broke the book up into two hemispheres mimicking the brain the left and right hemisphere so one of the things about the brain that's interesting is that the right hemisphere has certain jobs it does for the, the organism it's inside. 
it deals with more abstract thinking, more creative thinking. It's, it's activated more during the dream state. So when you're asleep, your right hemisphere is a little more activated than the left. Mm-hmm. And so um, the conversation you and I are having right now is dominated by the left hemisphere. It's very rational, linear, logical. Okay, so those two sides of the brain are doing different things. Now, they are integrated, you know, in your day-to-day life. There's a part of the brain called the corpus callosum. It's like a trench that runs down the middle of the brain and connects the two hemispheres. And its job is basically make sure one side of your brain talks to the other. So you can live kind of an integrated life, okay? Now, the book is split up in a similar fashion. There's a lot of logical and linear and data-driven words written down that are meant to be taken literally and rationally and convey information in the same manner that you and I are conveying information right now. Mm. The other half of the book is dominated by the right hemisphere, which is metaphor, dreams, uh, artistic and and non-literal statements, right? Things that are not to be taken literally, but rather as metaphor. The same kind of language you get maybe in a poem. Mm. Um, and so the book is split into those two types of language. So it's half kind of dream world, half rational world. And I did that for a reason. I did that one because I, I actually do think I, I am dominated by both hemispheres. In other words, I think I have a, a pretty good handle on both hemispheres. I can speak in a linear and logical fashion when I need to. But I'm also, I, the creative side of me is available pretty much at any time. And that, that's rare. Most people are kind of dominated by one or the other. They're really creative or they're really logical. Mm, I, think I, got, I think I got both of those firing too. Yeah, right. And so you have both because you're a musician, but when you speak, like you're 100% linear and logical and anyone and everyone can follow exactly what you're saying. You know, where a lot of artists, you don't know what they're talking about, man. You're like, I dig your music or I dig your book, but (laughs) I I can't understand a word you're saying, right? So me me and you are rare in that we can do both. Mm -hmm. But I wanted the book to uh, mimic the brain that way. I wanted it to be both left and right hemisphere. So I think it does. I think it's constructed that way. Now, the question was, what is the intent of the book? The intent of the book was to open up people to these experiences. I felt like, and this is one of the things I got from a guy named Ian McGilchrist. He lives up there in Scotland now, and he's a writer, and he wrote a book called The Divided Brain. And he said that modern culture has shifted the human brain from a right hemisphere dominance to a left hemisphere dominance. And he traces it about to the Enlightenment, so about 500 years ago. That basically, before that, mankind was kind of dominated by their dreams, their visions, their religion. And that after the Enlightenment, man began to be dominated by more logical things, you know, a reasoned argument, commerce, economics, and logical philosophy. I think we're moving back in the other direction. Yeah. So what I wanted to do was create a piece of art that allowed people to use their right hemisphere again in an unapologetic way. Mm. And I didn't want them to feel like there, that there was a problem with tapping into the instinctive side. And this can manifest in a lot of different ways. You know, some people it's through religion, you know, some Mm -hmm. people it's through art. Um, 
But what I wanted to do was create a book that allowed people to tap into that instinctive side. Because I think one of my things, we'll see how you feel about this. One of the things I feel like is that in the manosphere, one of the things that has been, has become commonplace is the idea that men are logical and men do not, are not guided by their emotions, okay? That this, this is the sine qua non of masculinity is to be stoic and, and rational. And what I wanted to do was introduce the idea that maybe that's not the whole story that maybe men actually are guided by their emotions and, and it's a good thing and, and here is how it manifests. Emotions like honor, emotions like fraternity, emotions like loyalty, emotions like love. Mm. Like these are masculine emotions and they are run through the limbic system. They are not neocortical, they are not rational. They are run literally by the part of the brain that's mammalian, that is emotional. And I wanted to introduce that idea to men like me that are overtly masculine and macho and all that stuff, mm-hmm. but feel deeply and can't be stoic all the time. And in fact, don't want to be stoic all the time. Sometimes we want to express our masculine emotions. And this manifests in our deep friendships with our brothers and in our love for our wives or children or in our reverence for art and poetry. I mean, I know people, I mean, these are very masculine men who will get a tear in their eye if you read them some Shakespeare because it affects them that much. Mm. And I didn't want, I wanted to introduce this idea that maybe men could be emotional in an appropriate way, in a masculine way, and it not be taboo. Yeah, that was a big part of the book. A huge part was the reintroduction of masculine emotion as a good thing, a, a pro-social thing. Mm. Now that sounds like something that's a, a message that's certainly necessary right now. So why did you call the book Sanction? Yeah, so Sanction's one of those words in the English language, there's very few of them, that mean both itself and its opposite. So Sanction literally means to approve of, and it also literally means to punish. So you can't get you can't get more opposite than I approve and I punish, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and so that's a hint at the subtext of the book because at all times the book is both well it's sanctioning everything that's going on and you as the reader have to decide if that means approve or punish. I hear you. And so we're we're coming up to that time, man. If people want to find out more about the book, they want to check it out, they want to get it, or they want to find you even, how do people find you? All right. So you can go to my Twitter, which is McClay underscore Roman. So that's M-C-C-L-A-Y underscore Roman. Or you can also find me at sanctionthebook.com. Sanctionthebook.com has both books. It has the posters. It has the euchre cards has video or uh, films that I made that you can watch for free. It's got everything uh, going on there. So really it's one-stop shopping sanctionthebook.com or hit me up on Twitter, McClay underscore Roman. Awesome. Sanctionthebook.com. I'm going to certainly be checking this book out once I get through. Uh, I've got a big pile of them I need to get through, but uh, when I do, I'm certainly going to be reading sanction next year and I look forward to checking it out, man. 
That's awesome, Zuby. I really appreciate it, man. You're very welcome, man. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Roman. It's been a pleasure speaking to you and getting to know you. All right. God bless. God bless. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the gram. Stunt me, destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam. Put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang. Y'all gonna remember the name. Y'all gonna remember the name. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.